Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hello and welcome to Cross Section. It's Danny in the host seat today and this week I am not in my normal place in London but in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Um, The advocacy team for the Evangelical Alliance is going on tour and I'm here as part of the advance party Uh, and I'm joined by David Smith who's the head of the Evangelical Alliance team in Northern Ireland and Dawn McAvoy who leads our Both Lives Matter work. Uh, We're going to be talking today both about what's happening in Northern Ireland, the politics of the situation, how Christians are engaged, as well as how Christians can engage with the issue of abortion um, all across the United Kingdom. But it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be this week's cross section if we didn't at least touch on the reshuffle that's happened this week. Um, As we are recording on Wednesday, the breaking news is that the government lost their appeal um on their plans to send asylum seekers to Rwanda and we may well have more to say about that in a future episode but we won't be diving into that uh quite yet this week um but the the big news of the week was the the sacking of Swell Braverman and the shock return um of David Cameron to the folds uh David what was your reaction to this well, I'm not sure I was quite in the same uh, Bob Hawkers the Sky news presenters who almost fell off their chairs when they saw the footage of David Cameron turning up at, at Downing Street. But it was, it was absolute shock to see him back. Um, he had been relatively quiet in recent years. Um, and uh, for Rishi to bring back a former prime minister um, is a bold move, no doubt. Um, he's obviously trying to... Um, do things internally within the Conservative Party, trying to rebalance um, ahead of an election coming up. And it's interesting to see how this will land internally within the party, particularly those on the right, and then how it lands with the electorate and what their poll, what happens with their polling in the weeks ahead. So I'm watching um, with bit of breath, and certainly it's a it's a bold and an interesting move. So the the sacking of Swallow Braverman was um, somewhat widely predicted. I think people thought that her time was probably up, that Rishi Sunak's patience with her was at an end. If that was predicted, Cameron coming back certainly wasn't. But as, I, as I've as i reflected on it over the last couple of days, I'm curious as to whether it works, because I think it's it potentially tries to do a few things. It, prov- it provides the government with someone who can handle the international side of government, traveling around the world, meeting other leaders, who knows what they're doing. Um, Within hours, Cameron was uh, photographed in the Foreign Office meeting a delegation from India. He's someone who can pick up that part of the job very quickly. So he can do that and probably free up Rishi Sunak for more of the domestic politics. Potentially, he's a media performer who can do the the set piece events, uh, the persuasive uh, appeal to Middle England, perhaps. But it's the it's the political calculus that I find most interesting in the in in sacking Swallow Braverman. And there's a potential alienation of those on the right of the party. Um, There's been a bit of criticism coming from a group called the New Conservatives. And I think some people who won their seats in 2019 might be worried about whether they'll hold on to their seats with a more moderate conservatism. Uh, This is not the conservative party that won his election in 2019 is the kind of mentality I've heard a bit about this week. But then I wonder 
if David Cameron's return and maybe what that means will help them win seats that they might otherwise lose to the Liberal Democrats. I think I think that's part of the rationale for it. I think actually, well, those that on the right of the party that voted for us in 2019 are unlikely to go back to voting Labour. But we might win back some votes who quite liked David Cameron and the coalition in those years, but may have felt a bit excluded in recent years. So that I think that's some of the political calculus. Whether it works, we just don't know. Um, and whether Cameron's challenges around Brexit, he's got a lot of baggage on that. Um, some of his engagements since leaving office, whether that's lobbying for China or uh, the controversy over the Grenzel and uh, questions that he was texting his mates in government about that. So I think there's potentially quite a lot that he comes with quite a lot of baggage. But obviously, he thought it, they thought it was worth it. And I think it was a very well kept secret. I think that was one of the things that surprised me most. All of the journalists, as you say, were totally shocked. But we are not a solely politics podcast. I could geek out on the internal machinations of government all day long. But that's not what we're here for. We're here to talk about how we navigate faith, news and culture. And Northern Ireland is a, a fascinating, fascinating place to be talking about that. Um, so, David, why don't you give us a rundown of where we are at in Northern Irish politics at the moment? Well, Danny, first of all, welcome to the mainland, as we like to say here. <laughs> uh, great to have you with us. I'm not presuming that millions of our listeners will um, be up to speed with Northern Ireland politics. Maybe I'm wrong, um, but it might be helpful just to remind people that we have a devolved uh, assembly here like uh, Wales, like in Scotland. Uh, but unfortunately, our assembly hasn't been working so well over the last 25 years. In fact, we've had the, the assembly's been down uh, for more time than it's been up at this point. Uh, and it last sat in February 2022 when it was collapsed by the Democratic Unionist Party at that point. It had been collapsed by Sinn Féin previously in 2017, so we have had a lot of tumultuous years. Um, but in 2022, February, the DUP collapsed the um, executive at that point because of their objections around um, the NI protocol and the fallout from uh, Brexit and trading arrangements with Northern Ireland and the rest, rest of the United Kingdom. Some of that was resolved within the Windsor framework, but not resolved to the liking or agreement of the DUP. And hence, we still don't have a government here. They're refusing to go back into government in Northern Ireland and form a government until they believe that Northern Ireland's place within the union is secure. And they see some elements of the Windsor protocol as undermining their place within the UK. Just a reminder as well for your listeners that we have quite a strange um, arrangement in terms of our power sharing government. So we have a five party executive. So if you can imagine for a moment, that would be like the Conservatives, the Lib Dems, Labour, all being forced to be in coalition together and um, having to rule together. And you can imagine that lots of things may not uh, even get onto the table. And sometimes that's what happens in Northern Ireland when five parties um, are mandatorily forced to rule together. Um, it means that sometimes we only get the bare minimum of legislation passed. Now, there's advantages to it as well. We came out of a period of troubles, obviously. The five party representation means that all communities are given the opportunity to be represented um, and our politics is maybe moderated a little more than one side being able to impose their rule. Um, but it does not make for good governance. 
and, and what we are really concerned about as we now get to a year and a half beyond the last time that a government really sat in Northern Ireland is, is everyday bread and butter issues, things like health and education. Uh, there was an article in the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, earlier this year who talked about the Northern Ireland healthcare system being on the verge of collapse. We have huge cuts in education, budgets aren't being passed, everyday decisions aren't being made about infrastructure and all kinds of things. And we're deeply concerned about this vacuum of political leadership, about good governance, sustainability, accountability and transparency. So the 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 power sharing agreement is that decisions are made by the five party executive. So what's happening now? How are decisions made? Well, effectively, decisions aren't being made. Um, there was a court case a few years ago when this last happened, when we didn't have an executive and civil servants, senior civil servants have been making some decisions, but they were effectively slapped on the wrist by the High Court judgment in Northern Ireland that basically said, no, you need to, you can't go beyond your powers into the realms of uh, ministers or politicians. And so there's a caution around making big decisions. Um, what effectively is happening is that the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, um, I, I suppose the power balance has shifted back to Westminster or shifted down to local council level. And there is this vacuum at devolved uh, level where just decisions are not being made. So there's stagnation. Um, key decisions that are required for spending, for investment, for policy development just aren't happening. And we're, we're concerned that when you have something like the health service and for 18 months at a time, key decisions are not being made. Well, that's going to have effects for decades to come potentially. Um, so yeah, we're, we're deeply so, concerned. So you shifted from the power sharing to basically either decisions not being made or being made unilaterally by the government in Westminster. Yeah, and we've seen a few examples of that. So um, in the last six months, um, decisions were made about the teaching of relationships and sexuality, sexuality education in Northern Ireland. That's a devolved issue. That, sh that decision should have been taken at by the Department of Education in Northern Ireland, but legislation was passed at Westminster. We've seen it as well with the Northern Ireland Legacy Bill, um, and Reconciliation Bill actually, as it's called. Um, and again, really sensitive issues um, have been legislated on uh, that actually all of the parties in Northern Ireland um, are opposed to this bill. Almost all of the victims groups, um, whether they are victims groups representing everyone in the community or just um, loyalist groups or just Republican groups, they almost all oppose this legislation because it limits access to justice um, and public inquiries and, and criminal proceedings. So we are in worrying times and really sensitive issues that affect all of our community are effectively being legislated on um, without uh, local representation. So how do how's how's the deadlock going to get broken i have looked at the windsor framework i can't confess to having read it all i don't fully understand it all i don't think many people fully understand all of the dynamics in play involved in it but what's going to solve this problem yeah the, the windsor framework is about trading arrangements within the uk and then with the republic of ireland and the rest of the eu and a lot of that is international law and business agreements and political agreements. And, and that's really important. I think the wider context and why this has become such a political issue is the the changing demographics in Northern Ireland, increased calls for a border poll. 
Um, and so a bit like Scottish politics, Northern Ireland politics, the, the ongoing background conversation um, is always really about independence in Scotland um, at, at the moment or about reunification or a border poll in Ireland. And so that's always the wider context. So the DUP refusing to go back into government around the Windsor framework, no doubt they do have concerns about the technicalities and business trading arrangements. But the bigger um, question is about identity, is about constitutional loyalty. And for many people in the unionist community, they feel threatened by the changing circumstances around Brexit, around um, the demographics and those who may be more favourable in voting for a border poll and a United Ireland. And that's really, I think, some of what is going on, a repositioning around some of that. Is the logic that if you have a harder border between Northern Ireland and Great Britain and a softer border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, people will get used to that. And therefore, those that oppose the United Ireland don't want to give ground on that because I think actually if people get used to that. They'll think, well, why are we separate countries anyway? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, we're sitting in Belfast right now. Um, if you drive half an hour south of here, you come to the border, there's nothing other than a change in the speed limit signs from miles per hour to kilometres per hour, uh, slight nuance in the road markings. But um, and then once you pull into a petrol station there, you know, nowadays you can get out your your debit card and you can pay just um, you used to have to stop, change cash, all, all of that kind of stuff. So there's very little to tell you straight away that you've crossed a an international border. Um, but yes, a, a part of the thinking, I, th I think, is that that internally within the UK, there should be no border. And many of those from a unionist um, background and, and belief would absolutely um, agree with that. There have always been practicalities in moving, say, livestock mm. across the sea. And there's been checks and balances around disease control and things like that. Um, but I think you're right. I think psychologically, if there's a greater barrier to moving goods, into GB than there is to driving over the border. That's not comfortable for many people um, who are unionist. So we're, we're, we're 25 years on from the Good Friday Agreement. Um, is that agreement still as valid and as important? Or is it a time for a, re a renewed sort of agreement that can then perhaps uh, provide the building blocks for the future? Uh, um, and do do people growing up have the same attachment to it? Mm. So I was born in 82. I'm 40 years old and I was born um, past the peak of the troubles, but certainly a good 15 years or more uh, before the end of it. Um, and the the changes certainly in my lifetime have been huge. My children are growing up in a very different Northern Ireland to I grew up in and to that my parents grew up in. And, and so the changes and, and the Good Friday Agreement has certainly been part of that. A big part of the Good Friday Agreement is symbolism. And there was enough constructive ambiguity, is a, is a term that was used yeah. at the time, that effectively meant that um, there was enough in the agreement for each side to find and be able to to sell it back to their people and say, hey, we won, we, we got what we wanted here, and it's time to move from violence to peace as, as a broad stroke brush and and I would never underestimate the, the hard work, the work behind the scenes from churches and, and lots of Christians, the political work that went on 
for many years to achieve this change. It's worth saying the DUP didn't support the Good Friday Agreement at the time. Um, with some changes in the St Andrews Agreement over years, they've come to uh, support the governance structures that are, are in place here. And I mean, seeing Paisley and McGuinness ruling, co-ruling as joint first ministers in Northern Ireland um, was a sight that most people thought they would they would never Maybe see listeners who they were? Well, of course, yeah. So Ian Paisley, founder of the Democratic Unionist Party, a billowing street preacher um, as well, founding his own church. Martin McGuinness was um, involved in the IRA, very, very senior in the Army Council by all accounts, and um, the leader of Sinn Féin. Um, and so for those two, to uh, Sinn Féin in the North anyway, for, for those two to um, lead together, um, I mean, it's a story of sort of biblical proportions in terms of road to Damascus turns for both of them. Um, Do you think it's almost been a victim of its own success that it was that now some things happened that were unthinkable in terms of the agreement and actually much of the violence has been more or less left behind? There's no problems. But actually, that means that people growing up now don't have the same sense of the importance of that. So actually what was hugely significant has almost has it served its purpose or or has it been important but needs to have a kind of a renewed sense of value? Yeah, I think so. The structure I talked about right at the start um, of our conversation about this mandatory coalition that is legally mandated that the parties need to work together. Um, so you can't really vote a party out of government in Northern Ireland if you're not happy with what they're doing. Um, that made sense in the transitional years um, around the Good Friday Agreement. 25 years on, um, I think most people and most parties agree that there's time to renegotiate that and time to change and to have more, I suppose, normal politics. If, 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 if normal politics is present anywhere in the Western world right now. Um, so I, I do think there's something of a need to change the structures and the wording and the agreement itself. I think you're right, though, in that what um, many people, it was literally blood, sweat and tears went into the Good Friday Agreement. 3,700 people died in the troubles in a small place of Northern Ireland, uh, a small rural community, really. Um, now things are very, very different and lots of younger people don't maybe know their history in many ways. Some are living in paramilitary areas, cannot break free from it. And there is a cycle of violence and of um, trauma and, and all of that being passed on down. But many young people um, are growing up without a good understanding of the history and without maybe an appreciation of what happened, why it happened and what needs to be maintained in terms of peace building. That's something we're trying to engage with from a church perspective. We believe that the people of God, we, we want to value character over constitution. You, you can still absolutely be British or, or Irish, but holding those things a little more lightly in terms of our kingdom identity. And we've been trying to encourage the church to continue this work in everyday peace building because we think the church is a really important role to play in this difficult space of peace building. And, and also, I was going to touch on this because I've heard stories of the role that the church and Christian leaders played uh, throughout the peace process. Um, but in this vacuum of leadership, so I think there's, a, there's, as you say, there's a role for the church in terms of the ongoing peace building. What role can churches play in terms of the vacuum of leadership we're seeing? Well, 
a lot of the um the missing uh, with with Dublin effectively being missing right now in Northern Ireland on many levels um local churches and Christian charities along with the wider NGO sector at times are certainly stepping in to fill some of the gaps around the cost of living crisis, around mental health, um, around pastoral care, um, things like that at local community level that they will, will always do. There is a lot of lobbying going on and um, that, that's now being directed more at Westminster or at local council level to step in. So churches I am seeing in this last year are certainly present on the ground and are present in terms of speaking up more, I think, and calling for leadership. Um, the church leaders just last week um, were meeting with all of the um, five political parties, urging them to get back into government and to continue to try to sort out the, the, the outstanding issues in a parallel track, but get back into government and keep working on the outstanding issues. So I think there's that when it comes to saying legacy and the, the troubles and reconciliation, churches, you, you could have in the same congregation um, someone who has lost a family member through violence, uh, a serving police officer or former um, police or, or soldier, um, and you could have them together and maybe a former paramilitary member, all who have come to faith or um, and, and are trying to live out life together and what justice and what mercy looks like. Um, and I, th I think the, the church really does have a very important role to play, both in terms of pastoraling, counselling, care for our communities, calling out injustices where we see it going on, um, but also um, calling for a completely revolutionary different way of living together, the, the forgiveness, the grace that political agreements will never deliver. Well, you're listening to Cross Section, uh, your usually weekly dose of faith, news and culture. And we're on tour in Northern Ireland with this special episode. Um, please do follow us on Twitter at EAUK News, on Instagram at Evangelical Alliance. And if you have any comments, any questions, any queries, anything you want us to be talking about, please email us at cross.section at EAUK org. Well, David set out some of the challenges that we've seen in some of the power gaps. In fact, I think it was during a previous power gap uh, in the Northern Irish Assembly. Was it over a government heating scheme that time that the Assembly collapsed? Anyway, the, there wasn't a, a Northern Irish Assembly and laws were changed around abortion in Northern Ireland. So it's great to have Dawn uh, with us now. Can you tell us a bit about what's changed in Northern Ireland over the last few years? Thanks, Danny. And it's great to have you here in Belfast. Um, just listening to that previous conversation about politics uh, and then tying that in with your question now, it's a reminder of the difficulty of um, governing in Northern Ireland whenever our own system locally maybe fails and then Westminster steps in and yes in 2019 from Westminster abortion legislation was changed in Northern Ireland. Um, taking a step back from the specifics of that I think it raises issues around the question of mandate and representation uh, democratically, politically and it has highlighted issues of trust maybe in politicians, politicians who are failing us locally and politicians who then are governing 
us and for us, legislating for us from Westminster, who maybe don't understand the or care about uh, local voices and local perspectives and a local culture. So in 2019, um, an overwhelming majority of English, Scottish and Welsh MPs voted for legislation to come into Northern Ireland when every sitting MP from Northern Ireland voted against it. So David's already highlighted maybe RSE and the Legacy Bill um, as other examples of when Westminster intervened. Uh, for abortion legislation, that has created a significant like a, a monumental change in Northern Ireland. So where before we had a much more protective law that restricted abortion in the vast majority of, of cases, it protected both lives in pregnancy, the mother and her unborn baby, as far as was humanly possible. And it meant that abortion rates in Northern Ireland were six times lower than in the rest of Great Britain, when we launched the Both Lives Matter campaign in 2017, we showed that 50 years of that different legislation had led to over 100,000 people living in Northern Ireland who would not otherwise have been, which shows that laws that restrict abortion save lives. All of that changed in 2019. New legislation was laid and came into effect at the end of March 2020. And from three different freedom of information requests, and we can talk about that. Um, we now know that between the end of March 2020 and the 20th of October 2023, just under 7,000 terminations of pregnancy have occurred, have been performed in Northern Ireland. Now, again, for your listeners in GB, that probably doesn't mean very much. 6,000, nearly 7,000 doesn't sound like a lot in the context of 215,000 annually in uh, England and Wales. But for us, the, the trajectory of that law change means that abortion rates here look set to triple in the next year. So it's a significant monumental change in the sense that laws have, have meant that lives are being ended. Mm. But beyond that, the legislation here doesn't provide for the same accountability and reporting that we see in England and Wales. So in England and Wales, you can go to your annually reported abortion statistics and you can look to see how many abortions have been performed. You can see why those abortions are being performed to respond from a policy perspective to the needs that are being felt um, by women who feel that they can't continue in their pregnancy. We don't have that information annually reported publicly available in Northern Ireland. So it's going to be much more difficult locally to respond from a policy perspective to address and meet the felt needs of women who, for whatever reason, feel they can't continue in their pregnancy. So the legislation from Westminster has created um, a very different culture within medicine and the healthcare profession. Um, and you can see the difference on the streets as well, just in the conversations that are being had around abortion and pregnancy crisis. So as a campaign, um, we're looking to speak into that in Northern Ireland, but now in this new season, more broadly across the UK. Because for the past six or seven years, both lives matter have been working in Northern Ireland, um, but 
it's not obviously it's not just an issue that's relevant in Northern Ireland. Uh, what are the key themes happening across the rest of the United Kingdom? And what are the challenges and the things that we should be thinking about and praying about? In 2017, when the campaign was launched, it was in Northern Ireland for a specific legislative challenge that was being faced here. Uh, the message uh, was threefold. It was about laws, advocating for laws that protect every human life, advocating for services that enable every life to be chosen, regardless of whether it's planned, perfect or privileged, um, and a culture that would affirm every human life, again, regardless of circumstances. That message um, actually holds true at its core. It's a compassionate, just message for the whole of the UK. Mm. Um, and although it wasn't solely a message for the church, um, because you don't have to have a faith to believe that lives, both lives and pregnancy matter, in this uh, season where there are continuing legislative challenges across the UK when it comes to abortion legislation, it's a message that um, actually stands for England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. You know, how do we respond as a culture who wants to respond compassionately for women facing pregnancy crisis, who values the, the life pre-birth that we see is evidenced in medicine? And what can the church say into that? But how can the church respond at a practical level for women and families in crisis? So for listeners who may not have the full understanding of how abortion laws work, what is the the Great Britain legal framework for abortion? Broadly speaking, um, there is abortion on request up to 24 weeks um, of pregnancy. That is limited by um, the medical professionals who will terminate the pregnancy. So the location of the termination uh, is mostly done in private clinics uh, funded by the NHS uh, and the vast majority of abortions are done in the first trimester but between 12 and 24 weeks you can still, uh, depending on the definition in law as to the need for the termination, you can access a termination. Um, but as I said it's de facto on on request. Yeah, there's, as I understand, there's a set of categories, yeah. but some of them have been interpreted very widely. So 98% of all abortions are uh, physically healthy women terminating physically healthy babies. Um, and the vast majority of those, over 99%, are performed under a mental health ground. But that has been interpreted and is being applied to, uh, it doesn't require a, a diagnosis of a mental health uh, need. It's determined by a felt need that you cannot continue in your pregnancy. And one of the things every now and then there are calls to change the law around abortion in Great Britain. Um, one of the most common calls is for abortion to be decriminalised. What does this mean? Decriminalisation of abortion is what has been done in Northern Ireland from Westminster in 2019. Um, and now we can see the same activist MPs who brought it in here uh, calling for women in England and Wales uh, and Scotland, but England and Wales primarily, 
to have the same access to abortion and the same uh, protections to abortion for um, that women in Northern Ireland have. So in the UK, we mentioned in GB that there are legal defences for abortion. So mental health, for example, is the reason given to have an abortion. In Northern Ireland, we don't need, there's no legal grounds for abortion required in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. So you don't need to, that's partly why we don't have the, the recorded data. You don't need to give a reason as to why you want an abortion. Um, you just request it and um, and it's performed. So decriminalisation here looks like 12 weeks on request, uh, no questions asked, no reasons required. Between 12 and 24 weeks in Northern Ireland, then it's similar to GB, there would be a mental health ground required or a risk to the physical health. Um, and then similar to GB again, from 24 up, weeks up to birth, you can access abortion if your life is at risk, a life and death situation, um, but also if there's a, a diagnosis of a disability for the unborn child. Um, so in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy, there's no criminal offence for the woman in Northern Ireland or for the medical professionals who would perform the abortion as long as it's um, done in the premises, under the NHS premises. Um, up from 12 weeks up to birth, there would be a potential criminal sanction for, again, a medical professional or healthcare professional who acted outside the law. But women in Northern Ireland up to birth would face no criminal sanction for inducing their own abortion. And that's, I think, the key fact that activists, activist MPs and medics and, and abortion activists in, in the rest of the UK want to introduce across the UK that no woman up to birth would face a criminal sanction if she induces her own termination. And we've we've already heard from MPs who on the back of the, the King's speech uh, last week see opportunities to bring forward amendments. So I'm sure we're going to come back to this topic when it uh, crops up in Parliament in the coming months. Um, finally, before we finish, how can churches across the whole of the United Kingdom better engage with this issue? I think it's really important that we talk about it and we talk about it in a way that we can ask questions and have a discussion about the detail of abortion. So taking it out of party politics and taking it out of um, activism and campaigns, I think it's time across the United Kingdom that we have a conversation about pregnancy, about women who are pregnant and about unborn life. I think we need to acknowledge the reasons why women are turning to abortion, ask based on 50 plus years of abortion legislation, how that is best serving women and families and talk about how we can respond to a woman in crisis in a way that doesn't assume that abortion is what she needs or actually what she wants. Some studies would suggest that up to 60% of women feel some level of coercion or pressure to end their pregnancy. And if they had other choices, they would rather continue. You know, we often say no woman makes that decision lightly, but in the context of a government that sanctions and provides for and supports 
abortion, then we're asking, can we at a government level, but also at a community level and certainly from churches, can we offer women other life affirming alternatives in a valid um so that it's a valid choice for them and churches have a much better story for women i think than assuming that the death of their unborn child is the best that we can offer for them thank you john and um, as an advocacy team across the united kingdom we're going to be talking more about uh, both lives matter about how churches can get involved about the political situation and what's going to be happening in that area over the coming months. Um, that draws us to a close of this episode of Cross Section. Thank you, David, and thank you, Dawn. Um, we will be picking up uh, a, a more normal schedule if Cross Section ever has a normal schedule in the weeks to come. Thank you for listening. And as I say, if there's topics you want us to be talking about, do get in touch and hopefully uh, tune in soon. Thank you and goodbye. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.